We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. This is Crosswalk Colorado Springs, a local community faith program from 100.7. The Word. Welcome to Crosswalk. I'm Chaim Goldman, the Watchman. So happy to have you joining us on this lovely Monday in the Colorado Springs Pikes Peak area. On today's program, you're you're in for a treat, and uh, and this is this is an unpredictable show. We we really don't know what's what's going to go on here. You'll understand that shortly because I have my my very good friend and brother Monty Ham on the program today. Monty, say hi to the good people. Good afternoon. <laughs> Monty is well. You know, uh, I'll describe him by by reading his bio in a moment, and you'll you'll understand this. But I would say I would I would uh, say that Monty is multidisciplinary in in all of the experiences and education that he's had in his life and what he does, and so he comes at at, at theological issues. With a, a very a unique perspective, I do too. As a Messianic Jew, we we come at things right to left instead of left to right already. But Monty brings something really special to it with everything that he's studied uh, and the fact that he has a photographic memory. And uh, if you ever get to hang out with Monty, it always goes late into the night and maybe to the next morning because there's so much to talk about. And what we are going to be, I I, I like to theme out the program. I like to sort of try to put it under a label, which is somewhat difficult, but we're going to be talking about things with a, about a biblical worldview from a Hebraic mindset. And it's very important to have a Hebraic mindset. And I'm going to chime in on that, too, because if you didn't know, everybody who wrote the Bible had a Hebraic mindset. So, so it's good Absolutely. to come at things and filter that in. So, um, Monty Ham, well, welcome to Crosswalk. Thank you very much, sir. It's great to have you here. I'll read a short bio of Monty's. Monty bio, Monty, <laughs> Monty's bio. Monty Ham has been kicked out of quite a few theological seminaries. Let's just say that for, for having differences of thought. He's a lifelong student, former IT specialist, and has worked professionally in a variety of disciplines, including martial arts, couples dancing, where he has also won world championships in couples dancing, automotive repair, and nutritional seminars on getting out of the medical system and into God's design for health. He has also worked for NASA and done computer securities for the Pentagon. And if I told you any more, Monty would need to kill you. So I'm not going to do that anymore. Anyway, suffice it to say, Monty has an, an eclectic professional, personal, and theological background. And so, Monty, that, that was the short of it. But uh, tell us about you. What? Wh- where do well, you? Where you. do you come from? <laughs> and how did you get here? Well, my dad always said I was hatched. Uh, but thank you. I'm always a pleasure. You know, I I guess it's the journey started probably 40 years ago. I had been looking into scripture, digging into scripture because I knew I needed to, and I didn't understand so much of it. I pick up this thing and I would make myself read the Bible. 
And I was like, I don't, I don't know what I'm looking at here. And uh, it was a little over 30 years ago, one of my best friends came up to me and he had been helping me teach the martial arts class and we're kicking back, having a cup of coffee. And he says, hey, did you realize that Yeshua was born on a Jewish festival, died on a Jewish festival, resurrected on a Jewish festival, returns on Jewish festivals? And I said, no, I had never gotten that information. And if that, people don't know, Yeshua is, is, is the Jesus Hebrew Christ. of what we call Jesus, yes. Absolutely. And we see that in the pictures, by the way, that we might touch on a little bit later in such as the name of Joshua. So that was what kicked off an entire new thought process for me. Uh, And so I was reading the Bible shortly after that one day, and I was reading in Noah's flood. And I read that the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat on the 17th day of the seventh month. And I stopped and I closed my Bible and I said, Lord, I don't understand. Why do I need to know this? Why is that relevant to my life whatsoever, because I'm coming at this from the standpoint of if God put it in there, it must have a purpose. And as it turns out, the calendar was rotated by six months in Exodus 12, and so prior to that rotation, what would have been 17th of the seventh month is now 17th day of the first month, which means first fruits. The actual resurrection was the day of God's new beginning on planet Earth with the ark coming to rest. So then I'm reading a little bit further, and of course, he releases a raven from the ark. The raven doesn't land. He hovers to and fro over the waters till the waters dried up, which is bizarre behavior for a bird. And so I started developing this pictograph system that we'll touch on in just a little bit of realizing that everything in Scripture has that duality and meaning. And we see in Matthew 13, when the Lord talks about parables of the unclean birds, he's talking about the ministers of Satan. He's talking about unclean spirits. And it's a pictograph. It's both a literal bird, but it's also a pictograph. So in this case, why did the raven hover to and fro over the waters? Well, that turns out to be prophetic. That's the exact day that both temples were destroyed throughout history. So you've got Solomon's temple was destroyed, and of course Herod's temple was destroyed. And so that starts drawing all sorts of pictures together in the calendar. And that's a little bit of the background of where I came from. So All of that bio really is just, uh, I guess, summarized up in the most important part is child of the king and, and of course, a father. I currently have one child in each of the first four decades. (laughs) Well, I want to comment about having a Hebraic mindset. And the way I like to describe it to people, other than just saying coming at things right to left instead of left to right, is that in in the Greek-Western mindset that we tend to operate with in the West uh, is that when you're trying to decide between two issues, you're looking to see who's right and who's wrong. The Hebraic mindset doesn't do that. The Hebraic mindset is an Eastern mindset. If you didn't know, your your religion, Christianity, is an Eastern religion. <laughs> Israel is in the East. It's in Asia. It's, it's very West Asia, but it's in Asia. And in the Hebraic mind, it's additive. It's not this or that. It's this and that. And so it's like six blind men and the elephant. We're, we're trying to describe the indescribable, the creator of the universe, of heaven and earth. And each of us see things. And if we can come together and bring that all together, come let us reason together, then we can get to higher truths. It's not about being right or wrong. It's, I believe this, and now I built on that. And if we could, in Christianity, take that on, which is the way Judaism sees things and the way Judaism uh, uh, argues about things. If you notice, Jews argue, but we we tend to get along with each other. It's not a breakdown argument. It's a discovery argument and iron sharpening iron. And so while you're listening to Monty, and this may very well challenge things that you believe, 
Don't try to see whether he's right or wrong. Try to see how what you're thinking and what he's thinking can lead you to something that increases your faith and well, brings you to something. Or, or by the way, you might just be wrong. And sometimes we have to <laughs> we have to say that. But most of the time, it's not that. It's additive. So back to you, Monty. Well, and that's such a great way to put that. And, you know, however many times I've been wrong in my life has been where I arrived at where I am. And we have to be willing to entertain that. Um, you know, I arrive at many of the, well, all of the opinions that I have through much study. So I don't typically discard it when somebody throws out another opinion. But if somebody can present to me facts why I need to look at another viewpoint, uh, I absolutely will. And and I love the way you put that because that's how the Hebrew language was written. Hebrew is the only language in the world that is both phonetic and pictographic. So if you're not familiar with what that means... In English, we look at a single word, a string of letters, and that's the phonetic pronunciation. But each letter has no intrinsic meaning. If I take those same four letters, put it in another language, it's another meaning because we assign it. You know, DNA is like that. But in, say, Mandarin, for example, each character is a story or a pictograph, and you don't put them together phonetically. Hebrew is the only language in the world that puts together both concepts and puts together the pictures and the phonetic, as well as the numerical values which Greek shares with it. So when you look at a word in Hebrew, such as the word used for hello, which is uh, shalom, which is roughly peace, and then you look at the pictographs, you can arrive at to overcome the forces which bind us to darkness. So it's really a much deeper meaning of what does that word peace mean. And that's the really cool thing about Hebrew is it joins those meanings together. It doesn't actually contradict itself. If you're struggling with a particular word in Scripture, you can go back to the pictographs and say, okay, let's look at this deeper and say maybe what is a secondary or even a third intended meaning that builds upon that first one. Now, originally we have this Paleo-Hebrew that it seems like the the Ten Commandments and the original <coughs> Scriptures were. Then we, we got into a Babylonian uh, uh, script language. Are you still able to tell this? These pick. Oh, wait, we have a break. <laughs> Coming up, when we come back, we're going to be getting more into the pictographs of scriptures and how they, they illustrate the events of, strips of scripture. You're listening to Crosswalk on 100.7 The Word. I'm Chaim Goldman, the Watchman, and we're spending the entire hour with Monty Ham going into biblical worldview and a Hebraic mindset. Please stick around with us. You're listening to Crosswalk, and we'll be right back. This is Crosswalk, Colorado Springs, on 100.7, The Word. Welcome back to Crosswalk. I'm Chaim Goldman, The Watchman. Happy to have you joining us here on The on um, the Word, 100.7 FM, the best in Bible teaching and talk across the region. And we know that you tune into this station because you want to get deeper into the Word, and that's what we're doing today. My guest for the whole hour is my good friend, Monty Ham, and we are talking about having a biblical worldview, specifically with a, an Hebraic mindset. And if that's all gobbledygook to you. Well, I'm glad you're here. We'll try to make it simpler, <laughs> and uh, you'll you'll peek into the world of Monty and my craziness because this is the stuff that we love um, to go into. And so, when we left at the uh, before the break, we were getting into pictographs and how Hebrew letters 
aren't only forming words and have sounds, but they're actually each one is a picture that tells a story as well as a number. And so what I was asking Monty about was we have this original Paleo Hebrew, which was the script that seemingly the Ten Commandments were written in by the by the very hand of God himself and then by Moses with the copy. Um, but then we ended up with a Babylonian uh, script as we were in exile, and that's the more traditional uh, Hebrew script that you'll see today in prayer books and, and things like that. But Monty, do we lose that pictograph when we go into the Babylonian script. Oh, absolutely. You know, and it's funny you mention that. People say it's all Greek to me or it's all Hebrew to me, and that's where we get that gobbledygook. Uh, And that was one of the reasons I started trying to study Hebrew, because it puts us into so much of a different understanding of layers. So you're asking about the Paleo or Paleo-Hebrew, and that's really where the pictographs come from. They don't translate in terms of looking at the characters quite as easily from, you know, a child mindset of, oh, this picture looks like this quite as well. But obviously we have charts and the translation is still there. And that's what makes it fantastic is those characters give us intrinsic meaning. They give us connections between concepts and numbers that we never see in English. We never see them in the Latin Vulgate. We're never even going to see them in Greek. And so, you know, when Moses went up on the mountain and he came back, uh, one of the things God said to him on the mountain is, do these things, make these things after the pattern I have shown you. And that's really just another way of saying, hey, here's some pictographs. We know that Jesus or Yeshua spoke frequently in parables. And if we think about it, that is also a pictograph. So just to take a couple of quick examples of what I mean by literal or phonetic and pictograph, Moses struck the rock to get water. He literally struck the rock. We literally get water. And that's a picture also of the rock of our salvation was struck so that we could receive the living water, the Holy Spirit. And that is why, by the way, that Moses was told the second time, ask the rock for water. Because when Jesus Christ returns the second time, he returns as king of kings. If you want the living water, you ask for it. He will not get struck a second time. But just to piggyback on that— Meaning crucified, struck like crucified, just crucified once, struck once. Exactly. And that's, you know, Daniel 9, 26, the Messiah shall be cut off as, you know, executed for our sake. Um, And that falls into those pictures. But, you know, piggybacking on that same pictograph there, Moses died on his 120th birthday. For 120 years, he he did everything God commanded him that we're aware of, at least. He missed one time when God said, ask the rock for water the second time. He struck the rock. He was angry with the people. Well, there's a pictograph there. Number one, he was the lawgiver or the Torah. He gave us the Torah. And as great as the Torah is, and it tells us all about Jesus, it cannot carry us into the promised land unless it is fulfilled 100%. So in 120 years, he missed one. What did he get? He got to see the promised land. He couldn't go into the promised land. It required somebody alive by grace by the name of Joshua or Yeshua to go ahead and take the people into the promised land at that point. So again, every single thing has that duality of the pictographs. Well, what are some of the, uh, what we call word pictures? And there's a, a book that came out a couple of decades ago. I think the author's name is Frank Seekins, Hebrew Word Pictures. So it's called, I believe, Hebrew Word Pictures. If you look into that, they have all of this Paleo Hebrew and showing you all of this. What are, what are some more of your favorite pictographs here in the language? Well, the, uh, the main part of my study is about how does the events of Scripture actually follow that duality. Okay. Uh, there's absolutely a bunch of them in the word pictures. Um, 
but I don't know that I'm the right person qualified to give a whole bunch of those. As far as uh, pictographs, you know, like I said, Moses died on his 120th birthday. Where else do we see 120 in Scripture? If we just start connecting the dots, because that's one of the things we get with the Hebrew mindset is connecting dots. Mm-hmm. And we connect dots all over the place that you're never going to see in English. Well, 120 years in Genesis 6-3, the Spirit of God will not strive with man forever. His day shall be numbered 120 years. Well, in the Hebrew, that word is actually cycles. So you've got a dual picture there. You have 120 years to the flood, but you also have 120 cycles. Well, a complete cycle is a jubilee, 50 years. So if you multiply that out, that's 6,000 years. There's the six days of man's rule laid out in Genesis 6, followed by the millennial kingdom, as we call it, the thousand-year reign of Christ, or the Sabbath day, the day of the Lord. So we start to see the whole 7,000-year plan of God mapped out. And what's cool is you can take Creation Week, and you can take all of the feasts and festivals, which, by the way, are called rehearsals and appointments of the Messiah in Scripture, and you can map them out over that seven-day or 7,000-year timeline, and things start fitting beautifully. Uh, A great example of that is Jesus was crucified around the year 4,000. I happen to believe it's right on the year 4,000. Well, in Exodus 12, the Passover lamb was to be taken into the house until the fourth day. Okay, so the end of, or 4,000 would be the end of the fourth day when the Passover lamb was crucified. That lines up with Moses' 120 years because he was 40 years old when he left the palace. He was 80 years old when he came back and delivered the Israelites from slavery on Passover, just as Yeshua did. 80 years or 80 jubilees is 4,000 years when Jesus delivered us from slavery on Passover. We can start to map out this whole 6,000-year plan of God in incredible format that way. And if you look at it, you know, you don't have to be a biblical scholar to know that God really loves the number seven. But when you see the the weekly seven, and then we have the, the Shemitah, uh, which is every seven years that we have a rest, and then we have the Jubilee, which is after seven sevens, and then we're looking toward this millennial reign, which is the seventh, uh, which is the seventh day, the seven thousandth year. What God's trying to show us through these things are prophetic patterns, so that we can lay them over our current world and know what to do and see these patterns and celebrate Him and have this knowledge, like that the the, the sons of Issachar knew the signs of the times. They knew the times, and they knew what to do. They had these prophetic pictures. Uh, unfortunately, the days, the feasts that the that Christianity has brought in, and, and not just added but replaced, um, don't carry those prophetic patterns. And so we walk around sort of blind. So if you're wondering, you know, is this just sort of— you know, theological mumbo jumbo or just an exercise and, you know, we like we like to be smart. No, this opens up great worlds to you and understanding of prophetic patterns. Well, absolutely. That 7,000 year plan fits so perfectly within that. And we miss it when, uh, you know, if God's teaching, if I'm teaching a class or let's say God's teaching a class and he says, I'm going to be teaching, I don't know, chemistry at 7 p.m. on Thursday and you show up Friday morning with a calculus book, you're not understanding what it is God's teaching at that time. So in those patterns, going back to just understanding where we are, Noah took the top off of the ark. If you look at all of the flood, it's all pictures. He took the top off of the ark in his 600 first year, in the first month, first day. Well, you start looking at what's the millennial kingdom, it's going to start in what, 6001, because there's no year zero. 
So there's your picture of 601, first month, first day, and it starts lining up. That's the end of what Noah would have called a tribulation period, where God closed the door and he went through this cycle. It's, it's fascinating stuff. I, I encourage you to study this more deeply. We, we don't have time to go into these patterns yet because there's other things that Monty wants to talk about. And when, when we return here on Crosswalk, Monty is posing a question, why did God choose the method of salvation he did? Do you want to give a 10-second preview on that? Sure. Out of all of the religions in the world, we have one that introduces reconciliation. And why did Jesus need to come in human form? Uh, excellent. Well, we're here on Crosswalk with Monty Ham talking about things that are eclectic, but really when you get into them very down to earth. We're looking at having a biblical worldview with a Hebraic mindset. You're listening to Crosswalk on The Word, 100.7 FM. I'm Chaim Goldman, and we'll be right back. Crosswalk, Colorado Springs on 100.7 The Word. To Crosswalk. I'm Chaim Goldman, the Watchman. So happy to have you joining us here. We have for the whole hour my good friend Monty Ham, and we're talking about having a biblical worldview with a Hebraic mindset. And and um, that's it's somewhat hard to describe. It takes sort of a lifetime to wrap your mind around. I can't claim that I have it completely because when you are raised in the West. You have a Western mindset, and you think about things in a logical way that doesn't mean that that's the only way to think. And when you travel the world, and especially when you go outside of the West and into the East, there are other ways that people think, and especially the writers of the entire Bible had an Eastern Hebraic mindset. And so it's good for us to wire our brains, rewire our brains in these directions, because suddenly Scripture pops off the page, or through the Holy Spirit, things are implanted that you may not have been able to perceive otherwise. And there's a there's a great, wonderful power to it. And hey, we're just learning about God from a different angle, so how could that be bad in any way? So as we, we went to the break, um, we teased that our next segment we were going to be talking about, why did God choose the method that he did for salvation. Monty. You know, and on that Hebraic mindset that you just mentioned, I'm, I'm grateful for the Septuagint, where we have Scripture in Greek, because it tells us what people were thinking about, what scholars were thinking about hundreds and thousands of years ago as they had direct access to Scripture. So if people but, don't know what the Septuagint is, it was a translation of the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek before Jesus so that we see what words were chosen in the Hebrew, and we can match those up. And Greek is a very precise language. However, it's much more precise and concrete than Hebrew, so it changes the mindset. And the nice thing is it shows us what they were thinking. But as you were just pointing out, Hebraic mindset has many different angles that it comes at it. So we unfortunately limit ourselves a little bit by looking at that from that uh, modern mindset that comes ultimately from Greek and even through English. Um. And so one of the things that we start looking at with the first Adam, right, Adam and the second Adam, why did God choose the method that he did for salvation? Why did Yeshua come in human form? Because I'm often posed the question, well, how do you know Jesus is the only way? For starters, Jesus is the only religious uh, event, I guess you want to call it, or person that provides a reconciliation. Um, One of the ancient Greek scholars, I believe it was Socrates, said it may be 
that a perfect God or a holy God can forgive sin, but I cannot fathom how. And he understood a question that we oftentimes don't even understand the question. We have the answer sitting right in front of us. But if we ever stopped and asked the question, you know, God is a righteous judge. Why did he choose this particular method? How do we know that that is the method? So in the beginning, God gave dominion to Adam. And we have to remember, Adam, when he fell, was not deceived. Eve was deceived. Scripture tells us that. Adam, I mean, he had just got done naming all the animals. He had all sorts of wisdom that he was walking with God on a daily basis. So this is a person who was clothed with light. There was an incredible revelation there. But what he did was willingly became sin for his bride. The first Adam did the same thing the second Adam did, except the second Adam did it without sin. He willingly took on sin, but he did not have any of his own. So then we have to back up and say, okay, wait a minute. What does that dominion have to do? God gave Adam dominion over the earth. So Adam and his descendants. So when we look at the book of Ruth and the kinsman redeemer, Boaz was a kinsman redeemer. What does that mean? Well, it means that it had to be a person that was of certain qualifications who was a next of kin qualified to redeem land that had been given away. Well, Adam gave away the land of the earth. He was submitting to God. He had dominion over the earth with his descendants. But when he submitted to Satan or Hasatan, which literally just means the adversary, by the way, it's not even actually a name. Or the accuser. Yeah, exactly. So when he submitted to that, he essentially gave Satan authority. And Jesus didn't argue with that. When he said the God of this earth has them blinded, he said it uh, uh, affirmed that many times. So in order for that to change, God has a couple of choices. Now, God never goes back on his word. So he's not going to just, okay, let me just undo that. He's a righteous judge, and a righteous judge can also not let crime go by without some sort of payment. But God now has a problem, and how does he solve that problem? What's fascinating is that we can see evidence in the names that that problem was thought about ahead of time. So he solves that problem by first recognizing, okay, a kinsman redeemer had to be a descendant of Adam. It had to be someone who was qualified Now, Adam gave up his dominion over the earth when he submitted to Satan. Without sin, there is no death. So remember, Jesus said, I lay down my life. No one can take it from me. Why could no one take it from him? Because he had no sin. So when he chose to lay down his life and take on the sin for his bride, much like the first Adam in the pattern, what he did was he opened the doorway for Satan to take a life that had not been... uh, uh, were guilty of sin, I guess would be the best way to put it. And so when Satan took that in violating the terms of the law, he gave up his dominion over the earth. Hmm. Now I can look at, uh, I personally look at, say, the book of Revelation as God coming to close on the escrow, but the payment was already made, reconciliation for iniquity, etc. So we see this principle where it required a descendant of Adam who was without sin, who also had to have his life taken when he lay it down without cause, because a curse shall not land without a cause. So if we back up a little bit and start seeing, was that just a knee-jerk reaction on God's part? Well, if you look at the ten names from Adam to Noah, Adam means man, Seth means appointed. Eve even tells us that she said that God has appointed me another son in place of Cain, whom or Abel whom Cain slew, and so on. And we go down through, mortal sorrow is the next one. Um, the blessed God, Mahalalel, is a kind of a mouthful in Hebrew, but the blessed God, Yared, or Jared, as we sometimes see it in Hebrew, literally means come down or shall come down. 
um, Enoch, which means teacher or teaching. Uh, Methuselah, longest living lifetime in the Bible, comes from the root word, which means death, and it literally is his death shall bring. So Methuselah was 969 years old when he died, and he the year that he died was the year the flood came. He was named as a prophecy by Enoch because God told him he would withhold the judgment of the flood out of favor for Enoch, who had walked with God. So his death shall bring what? Shall bring the judgment of the flood, ultimately. Methuselah's son was Lamech. It's where we get the word lament. And then uh, Noah, which means comfort or rest. And Lamech even tells us that he shall comfort us from the rest of our hands. So if we put that all together and we have a mouthful, what we have is man is appointed to mortal sorrow. But the blessed God shall come down teaching that his death will bring the despairing comfort and rest. And so we have a summary of the Christian gospel in the genealogy of Noah. You're not going to convince me that a group of rabbis who didn't believe in the Messiah contrived to hide this in there. This was God's doing from the very beginning. God knew the end from the beginning because the time domain is with his. And then we see that pattern repeated over and over, right? Adam Willie became sin for his bride. But we also see uh, Joseph and Daniel, two of the people, two of the only people in Scripture that are never spoken of negatively. But what did they become? They became second in command. Joseph became second in command in the kingdom. Daniel became second in command in the kingdom. Both of them, after going through captivity, being forsaken by their brethren. Uh, in Daniel's case, it was uh, national captivity. So we have this picture of Yeshua in these people who become second in command, and I'm saying that directly with the Father. So you've got the Father and you've got the Son, Jesus. And then you have the pictographs, again, with these literal happenings. Why did God choose to play it out? Where Joseph and Daniel went into captivity, and they became second in charge of the entire kingdom. And again, we're looking at pictures and patterns of Scripture that Yeshua is fulfilling because the volume of the book is written of me. So... This is very, it's got very deep. <laughs> I know that if you didn't follow it all, that's fine. I just encourage you within this, it's, it's like the, it's the rabbit hole. How deep do you want to go down? And it's not for just a theological or scholarly exercise. There are great depths of revelation within all of these things, including, look at that, right in the beginning of the Bible, the gospel of salvation is laid out in the genealogy of Noah. Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to move on from that because Monty has another topic he wanted to introduce. When we come back in our final segment, why are we instructed to pray for absolutely everything? You're, look, you're listening to Crosswalk. We have Monty Ham on for the whole hour. I'm Chaim Goldman, the Watchman, and we'll be right back. This is Crosswalk, Colorado Springs, on 100.7 The Word. This is Chaim Goldman, the Watchman, and you're listening to Crosswalk, and we are here for the entire hour with Monty Ham, good friend of mine. A uh, Hebraic thinker. We, we love to banter. We'll go on for hours and hours and hours. And what we're introducing to you, maybe if this is new, or maybe we're, we're solidifying something God's shown you or something that you've studied some. I mean, most Christians uh, know about Messiah in the Passover, Jesus in the Passover, and all the, all the, the pictographs, all the types, all the things, the foreshadowings in the original Passover in Egypt, in the Passover celebration, and then to the fulfillment of 
of Passover um, 2,000 years ago by the blood of the Lamb. But there's also a future fulfillment of Passover. We're not going to be getting into that today, but I'll just seed that to you, that these patterns go on and on and on, and they really not only increase, I know they increase my faith, but they they set up this wonderful way to study. And in this final segment, uh, Monty has posed the question, why are we instructed to pray for everything? So, Monty, why are we instructed to pray for everything? Well, prayer has a number of purposes. Obviously, it is God's way of involving us in what he is doing. But if we go back to what we started with in pictographs, and you mentioned Passover, uh, a great example off of that, that anybody who's ever done a Passover Seder may sit there and say, why is water mixed with the wine at some point? Well, when Jesus was poked in the side, blood and water flows out. So there's a pictograph that very often people celebrating the Passover don't even understand why it's there. But when we start looking at those pictures and looking at the parallels, how did the festivals teach about Messiah? Then we can start to see so much deeper information as you were just talking about. Uh, but we go back to what we were talking about earlier when Adam was given dominion over the earth. <clears throat> and then Jesus came and won that dominion back, but he won it back for mankind on behalf of mankind. So at this point, what I would call the transition point, where Satan is still loosed, he hasn't been bound for a thousand years yet, the Lord is coming to close on the escrow, hasn't been done yet, but yet he has won the dominion back for us. And so it is God's way of involved in involving his plan in our dominion, if you want to think about it in those terms. So think about the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. So first thing we do is bless the name of God. Thy kingdom come. And then what's next? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will is already done in heaven. So why are we praying for God's will to be done here the way it is in heaven? Because this was the dominion that God gave us. And Adam willingly chose to give that dominion for a while to someone else. So in order for God to legally operate... In our realm, we petition that. We say, God, I would like you to do this. So if we take a look at prophecy, quite frequently what we see is God saying, hey, this is what I would like, my best for you. Why was it that when Daniel was reading in the book of Jeremiah, it's been almost 70 years, Daniel's been in captivity for 70 years, he sees this prophecy that says 70 years of captivity, oh, it's almost up. What was his response? To pray for its fulfillment. And we see that pattern over and over in Scripture. So the idea is, well, I thought God was omnipotent. He could just do anything he wants. That's true, except for one thing God does. He never breaks his own word. His own word is the only thing that he exalts above even his name that uh, conveniently has been taken out of many of our Christian Bibles, by the way. So if we look at the uh, final reason for prayer, it's prayer for understanding, of course because we're asking for God specifically not just to operate in our dominion, but also to come into our life personally. Why is it that we want God to come into our life? Well, when Yeshua spoke in parables, he frequently did so, and he says this, because you have been given eyes and ears. They have not. So he spoke in parables, and he tells us deliberately it is so that his people would understand. Well, now we're back to praying for understanding so if we look at Matthew 13, just as a quick example, we've got uh, quite a few parables, and there's just three of them that I'd like to touch on um, for seeking understanding on. Take these to God in prayer. Don't take my word for it. Find out if maybe it rings a little bit true, because I oftentimes hear these addressed in a ways that don't make any sense to me from what I read in Scripture. 
And this is just the understanding that I've prayed for, and maybe God will bring you something else. One of them is the parable of the mustard seed. So in Matthew thirteen thirty one, compared to a grain of mustard seed, and it is smaller than all the seeds, but it grows, becomes a tree so that the birds of heaven come and nest in its branches. Well, earlier in Matthew 13, we see that the birds nesting in the branches were actually the ministers of Satan. And a mustard seed, if you've ever looked at a mustard plant, isn't supposed to become a tree. So we're looking at something where religion has overgrown and has been infiltrated, if you will, with all sorts of paganism. And even the ministers of Satan have been nesting in its branches. We take a look at two others really quickly, and that's one of them is the parable of the wheat and the tares. And this is uh, something we hear all the time talking about rapture. can take it one way or another, but if you look at Matthew 13, 29, and 30, it says, first gather up the tares, and then I will come and gather the wheat. And then the final one to touch on is the seed of the uh, pearl. Was sometimes talked about the pearl of great price. A man seeking excellent pearls, finding a precious one, going away, has sold everything he had and bought it. Okay? He bought this great pearl. So I've heard that preached many times in various churches as we, as his bride, are that. Uh, I'm sorry, as uh, that God is the pearl and we are seeking that. But I would flip that around and say that's we as his bride. Remember, pearls come from oysters. If you go back to Leviticus, oysters are unclean. So why... Would we be, as humans, selling everything we have to buy a, a a husband, if you will, in the Messiah, who is unclean, when we can't buy salvation in the first place? Instead, we are the one who is unclean. He is the one who gave up everything he had to come and claim his bride, which would be flipping that parable around on its head from where I often hear it taught. So... Again, just looking at pictographs and looking at how we pray for understanding on that. So how about our prayers? How are we to pray? And when we, when we approach prayer, what's a proper Hebraic way to do it? I know a lot of people approach it almost as begging, but we have a legal right to petition these prayers. Well, you know, the whole uh, movement— Getting into the courts of heaven, I think, has done a fascinating job of drawing out parallel scriptures, and Robert Henderson's books have done a great job on that. But the idea is we are coming before God with the legal right. God is a just judge, and the only reason we have the right to come before God is because he has given us a righteousness. We don't have that righteousness. So when Jesus said, pray like this, he didn't necessarily mean that we recite that one prayer over and over, but he's giving us a pattern, right? We exalt the name of the Father. We're grateful for what we have. We're asking for God's will to be done in our lives as it is in heaven. And, of course, it's more than just a wish list of, hey, God, I would like you to do this for me today. No, it's uh, prayer without ceasing means we're spending a lot of time seeking God's will as well. Amen. Well, Monty, we have about one minute left. Would you like to speak a word of encouragement for those who find this fascinating, maybe a little confusing, to encourage them to go deeper? Absolutely. And I would start off by saying some of this stuff, you know, can get pretty deep and people either love it or they get intimidated by it. Um, But how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time, right? That's not kosher. (laughs) Well, fair point. How do we eat any large animal? Still one bite at a time. Um, When we get saved, why don't we go home right away? It's because God is not done with us. That is not the end game. Absolutely, it's super important, but it, and, uh, and that may fly in the face of what we heard, but that is not our end game. That is the entryway. It's the doorway. God spends the rest of our life going through the sanctification process and teaching us. So 
Just uh, just keep at it one bite at a time and uh, pray for wisdom, and God starts to open up things in Scripture you didn't notice before. Amen. Well, Monty Ham, thank you so much for being our guest for Crosswalk Always today. a pleasure, sir. It's It's been wonderful. And uh, yeah, study to show yourself approved. Let's say that. Just go deeper and see what God shows you. I'm Haim Goldman, The Watchman. You've been listening to Crosswalk on 100.7. The Word. Catch all of our episodes in podcast on our website, thewordfm1007.com. And I also invite you, we've launched a brand new local news talk program on our news talk sister station, The Answer, AM 1460 and FM 101.1, Monday through Thursday from 3 to 4 p.m. Please join me over there as we are bringing media accountability to the whole region. Now, let's get out there and question everything, even in church, and look for God's patterns, for our mission is to walk in truth for such a time as this. Shalom. 100.7, The Word.